You're listening to teaching from the Word of God, provided by Black Forest Chapel. This is the church where you will find biblical teaching and authentic worship with family and friends. We are located in Black Forest near Monument and just north of Colorado Springs, Colorado. We invite you to join us this Sunday. Find our location, worship times, and more at blackforestchapel.org. Morning, church. Thankful, thankful you're all here on this beautiful Sunday morning. <clears throat> we accept the, the dark and the cold because it helps us to appreciate the light and the warmth, right? That's how we look at it. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Exodus chapter 17. We're in our series in Exodus, continuing through journeying along with God's people and God himself as he makes a people for himself. He has saved his people, and now he is sanctifying them on their way to the promised land. And um, I don't know about you, but this has been uh, a really helpful journey through the word. Um, this is all for our benefit, for our uh, edification to help us grow, to warn us. We, we know that the story, this narrative, is not just an old story in an old book, but it's for God's people today. It's for us. So I, I hope and pray that this has been a blessing for you. Uh, let me pray for us as we uh, enter into God's Word. Father, we thank you for your goodness. You're so good to us. You are full of grace and mercy. And with boldness and confidence, we can we can enter, we can come to your throne of grace and ask for help because we're your people. You've saved us. Those who have put faith in your son, Jesus, who hung on a cross and atoned for our sins, we belong to you. Lord, you are not an indifferent God who kind of winds things up and just lets things go. Lord, you're intimately involved with everything that we do because your glory is at stake and that is our highest goal, Lord, is to bring you glory in this life. And because you love us so much, you know what, what is good for us. And so you sanctify your people. You make us holy, even as you are holy. And Lord, it's painful, and we don't like it, and we grumble and we complain, and yet your grace continues to pour out over us. And we don't understand it, but Lord, we're truly thankful for it. Thank you for your great salvation. Thank you for this great sanctification as you, as you help us along in this world. And ultimately, Lord, as you provide victory in the spiritual battle that is evident everywhere. Help us to be mindful of your, of your truth this morning, Lord, that it would penetrate our hearts and our minds. We would not come in this place with walls of defense built up, Lord, trying to do our own thing. We would submit to you and all that we are. Um, Holy Spirit, help me to speak clearly and help us to hear clearly, Lord, and to obey your word. For you are truly good. Your word truly sanctifies. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to be in Exodus 17, verses 8 through 16, and just as a precursor, as kind of a quick summary, we've been walking through and we've seen uh, the people, Israel, crying out for help, for a savior. They were, they were in horrible bondage for well over 400 years. And if you know the story and you've walked through uh, this, this uh, series with us, you know that they cried out for help. They, they truly just had nothing. They, they could not save themselves. And so they cried out, and God heard, and God remembered, and God made promises to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob, and, and God came 
to deliver them. And he, he raised up Moses, and, and all of this is a type, a foreshadowing of, of, of Christ to come. And he brought justice and plagues on Egypt, so he judged the Egyptians, he judged Pharaoh, he judged the gods of Egypt. And as he did that, he brought his people out after the 10th plague, and God provided a way through the Red Sea on dry ground when there was no way, and by doing that brought them from death to life. He saved them. And what we know about that salvation is that God did everything. Right? He didn't ask he didn't ask the Israelites to take up their swords, grab some bricks, you know, put one brick there, save one brick at home. I, I need you to to, to to mass an army so that I can use you to save yourselves. He didn't do that. It wasn't about their works. They could do nothing. He didn't ask them to take up arms against Pharaoh or against Egypt. We know this because in uh, chapter 14 that we just left not too long ago, in verse 13, and Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the, the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you only have to be silent. And so this, this salvation was by God alone, by grace alone, right? And we know that's true for us today, those who believe in Christ. It is by grace we have been saved through faith, and this not in ourselves. It's a gift of God, not by works, so that no man can boast. We know that this is God's act of grace and so all the Israelites had to do was, was what? They just had to believe, right? There's some dry ground. There's a wall of water. I know it looks a little scary. It looks a little weird. There's an army coming after you. Will you trust me? Will you believe? And they, they walked across. And then God destroyed the, the Egyptian army and wiped them out. And so that salvation was God's alone. They didn't have to do anything. And now as we come to this part in our story, we've seen God taking them from place to place. He's commanding them how to move and where to go, and it's all purposeful. God is intentional about where he's taking his people, just like our lives are not random. We seek the Lord, we pray, and we move in different places, and we do different things, and God's in all of those things. And all along, he's what now? He's sanctifying his people. The people have been saved from bondage. They are free to be his people but they still have all the world in them, right? They, they are lifelong slaves. They've never been free. They've never walked with their God. And so he's got to train them and teach them how to be holy. And he's so gracious in how even when they're grumbling, God is full of grace. And so he's taking them through and he's teaching them about provision. that He will provide for them. He's provided bread from heaven, right? And ultimately, what was the message in that? They had these strong cravings. They, they still wanted the things of the world. They, they, the, their sin was still attractive to them. And so God had to kind of rip that out. He had to do surgery, and so he, had to, he still provided for them, but was also teaching them that man will not live on just bread alone, but on every word from the mouth of God. It's, it's not just about the physical. There's a spiritual element here. There's something different because we're meant to live with God forever, not just temporarily here on earth. And so he's training them and teaching them, yes, the physical is important. I'll take care of the physical, but there's something far greater than that. There's this spiritual realm. There's, you, you are not just physical people. You are a spiritual people as well. And here's how I'm going to train you to be holy. And so they had to trust him for food. They had to trust him for water. God provided them rest, even when they didn't really want it or understand it. Right? He's provided himself. Even when they put God on trial, we saw last week, they were testing God. They actually put God on trial and said, are you really here? Are you really among us? Can we really trust you? Even in that, God was gracious. And now we come to a different scene, the first battle that Israel gets engaged in. So let's read chapter uh, 17, 8 through 16 together. 
Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek, while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. While Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book, and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. So this is a this is a you know decently well known story in the book of Exodus the idea of Moses holding up his hands and having Aaron and Hur hold up his arms and the battle ensues um, but there, there's another component here that I really um, never drew from it until studying a little bit more and uh, prayerfully uh, you'll you'll find some some value in it this morning as well. Uh, first, we see that, that Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So just some of, the, some of the nuts and bolts here, and then we'll get to some of the, the principles and points that we can take home with us. Uh, Amalek, this is why genealogies are helpful, right? So in Genesis 36, no one ever says that, but sometimes they're helpful. Uh, Genesis 36, we see that Amalek is actually the grandson of Esau. And if you remember the, the story of Jacob and Esau, and, and Esau selling his birthright for a bowl of Campbell's chunky stew, because he was hungry one day from the field, right? This, this, he despised his birthright. He sold this for nothing. And then Jacob weasels his way back in and deceives his father and actually receives his blessing as well as the firstborn. So he's double whammy. He's been, he's been taken here. And so there was no blessing left to him. And so his father, Isaac, essentially said, um, you know, you're, you're not going to live in the, in the fattest of the land. You're not going to have all the, all the benefits. And you're really going to live by the sword as well. So there wasn't a great blessing there for, for Esau. And we see his, his grandson, Amalek, essentially living out that family legacy. He's living by the sword. And so Israel is moving through. They're at Rephidim. They're not provoking. They didn't do anything to provoke this. But Amalek and his nomadic group attacked them. They came at Israel. And so if, if you, you know, one of the things that's helpful is other parts of Scripture kind of fill in the blanks for us. This was not a, hey, you're taking my water, and I'm going to defend myself. This is not an honorable battle where Amalek, the Amalekites you know, stand before Israel with all of their soldiers, and they have their battle cries, and they move forward. And this is, this is not what's taking place. If we look at Deuteronomy 25, we get a picture of what actually took place. Deuteronomy 25, verse 17 says, Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt, how he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail, those who were lagging behind you, and he did not fear God. So this is what was taking place. Um, the Amalekites, which who essentially become one of the persistent nations or persistent peoples that um, Israel has to struggle against, 
There's, there's many other nations, even as they move toward Canaan, they're going to they're gonna struggle against other nations, right, to, to lay hold of the promised land. But God promises to fight for them and to be with them and to hand them over to the Israelites if they would just obey God. And we always think of the Philistines as that constant enemy, but the Amalekites are right there along the way. We see them up in, in the first, second Samuel. We see Saul dealing with them and Saul disobeying God and, and sparing their king. And we see David dealing with them. And ultimately, these nations, these peoples represent the, the powers of the world. They present, we have, there's a ruler of the world. There's Satan and he's got, he's got powers and he's, he's using nations to come against God. He's rebelling against God through the rebelliousness of sinful man. Man is, is culpable, and so is Satan. He's a real enemy. There's a real battle taking place. And so what we see with Israel coming up against all these enemies all the time is the same thing that we see in our walk with the Lord. We are saved. We are God's people. and We walk in this world, and we come up against opposition and obstacles and people that fight against God. They're, it's rebelliousness, right? It's, it's sinful man. I think sometimes we watch the news so much and we get, over, we get worked up about all these things taking place and we try to figure it out in our minds. We get frustrated and we get angry and we, we pace around the house and we have conversations and we can't figure it out and everything's on, every, you know, the injustice just continues to rise and all the political things happening in our, in our national landscape are frustrating to us and we, we start to fear and we start to walk. But honestly, this, there's nothing new here. It's the same thing. There are powers, there are authorities, there are, there are people in places of, of power, there, there, there are structures, there are principalities, there are things working behind the scenes, things working in the middle of the, the world around us, and it, it, there's nothing new here. And God knows that, and God uses that to sanctify his people, to bring glory to himself. And so we need to be a, a people of the word so that we are encouraged and have perspective. We always say we want kingdom perspective. Well, you need to be in God's word to understand what the kingdom is and, and how he calls us to walk, right? So we need to be a people of the word. And if we're not, then by default, we're kind of a people of the world in some ways. And every time Israel lets up off the gas and lets a nation have their way or tries to make peace with these worldly nations or worldly powers, they compromise themselves. They become diluted. They, they become idolatrous. That's why when God says, wipe them out, he's really just saying, put away all sin. Kill sin in your life. Don't be a part of it. Don't mess with it. Don't play with it. And so he's, he's, he's bringing this, these Amalekites, this, this first group, and there'll be more to come. And ultimately, you know, when it comes to watching the news and the, the, the political <laughs> findings of the day, I'll give you a quick heads up, and then you can decide if you still need to watch anything today, right? There are, there are evil men and women. There's evil people doing evil things, right? Rebelling against God, living sinful lives, and, it's, and it destroys and corrupts, and that's going to take place pretty much every day. And then there's going to be cloudy days, and then the sun will come out tomorrow, right? So there's the forecast for you. Just put everything in your car you possibly need. Coats, hats, gloves, shorts, whatever, for the day. You know, it's always bad news. Because man has not changed. Man has not changed. It doesn't matter if they're walking around Rafidim as a nomadic tribe or if they're in the White House or in the Capitol building or down the road. It doesn't matter. They're, they're always going to be there. God is allowing them. But Jesus Christ has won. He has the victory. He's put above all rulers and principalities and, right? He, he, he is, he is head. He, he, he has dominion over everything. He's the true king. And the story is going to play out and there's going to be opposition until we go home to be with the Lord. That's just the way it's going to be. And so, 
you can watch the news every day and then be kind of satisfied with a little story about puppies on skateboards at the end of the show because they, they have to make you feel better. You have to want to come back for something, right? Or you can be a people of the word and not be fearful. Be expectant that these things are going to come and prepare your hearts and be a people that are different than this world. And so this is what God is, is, is trying to teach his people in this story. That the, yes, there's a physical battle in front of us. There's, a fiddle, there's always a physical battle, right? There's opposition. Someone comes up, they're yelling at you. There's something happens at work. Something happens relationally. There's a physical component to it. But how do we respond as God's people? Is our battle against flesh and blood or not? And so we, we look at this story and see that it's, it's not just flesh and blood and that God's strength is, is what we need to rely on. So Amalek is coming and, and he's not fighting fairly. Does that sound familiar? Is, is there any injustice in the world today and people not fighting fairly and deceitfulness and underhandedness? And do you, do you think that we can't see that? Do you think it's not known? Of course it is. Is it anything new? No. What is the strategy here of this man? This grandson of Esau. The strategy is I'm going to look for the weakest in the pack, just like a predator does, right? Those who are weak and those who are, I'm going to wait till they're really tired and I can see that they're, and I'm not going to, we're not going to attack them from the front. There's no honor here. All those that are lagging behind, that's who we're going to come in and take out. Who typically lags, lags behind when you're marching in a caravan across the desert with a couple million people? What's going to happen there? Maybe the elderly, maybe the infirmed, maybe families with young kids. I don't this man is ruthless. This is evil at its core. They did not fear God. These are godless people. Same as today. People don't fight fairly. We, would we really expect that for those who belong to the ruler of this world? But God has a plan, and God responds. And now, the difference here is that God is finally saying, take up arms. It's time for you to enter the fight. And so that's kind of our first point this morning, is God calls us to fight. He does call us to fight. Now, salvation was on God alone. He's the only one that can do that. We get this, we get this turned around, right? We want to still earn our salvation. We still want to work and make ourselves feel better that we've done something. Only God can save. And they were just to sit back and watch the salvation of the Lord. And that was a beautiful thing. And he did all of that work. And they didn't have to do anything except for believe. That's it. Now, as part of their sanctifying process, they are to go out and be, become his people, and they are to actually fight. So he's, he's, he's telling, uh, uh, Moses tells Joshua, and Joshua, this is the first time we've seen Joshua on the scene, and he has no, there's no backstory, there's no real great introduction for Joshua, there's an assumption that he's just a faithful man, and maybe he's a bit of a fighter, I, I don't know, but we, we don't know much about him. He's mentioned here for the first time, and then at the end of this little section, Moses was supposed to write this down as a memorial, the first time something was to be recorded in written form, and then recite it in the ears of Joshua. Remind him, tell him. Why is that? Well, Joshua was one of the spies going into the land in Numbers 13 and 14. Right? And ultimately, Joshua becomes Moses' successor and takes the, the people into the promised land. He's going to be a great commander. He's going to be a great leader. And great leaders start somewhere, right? We always think the people that are at the top just somehow, they just arrived. But no, it's usually from a long life of modeling and of character and doing the right things consistently over time. And So Joshua is called up. Moses says to Joshua, choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. That's quite a statement. They've never fought anyone before. These are not soldiers, right? We just assume, yeah, that makes sense. Israel's going to fight. They fight in other places. But they've never done this before. They've been slaves, 
Maybe they did some stick fighting and the downtime, right, or something. I don't know. Um, but they've never actually fought an army before, and they've seen what God can do. And they're probably, if I was one of these people in Joshua's, looking at this group saying, I don't know who I'm going to pick here. Um, you look like you're kind of strong, but I've, I don't know. Like, like who, who's he going to pick, right? Probably strong men for the, for the battle, but none of them already, do they even have weapons? Now, it says they have, he beat them by the sword, so they must have weapons. Maybe they gathered weapons after the Egyptians were uh, killed in the Red Sea, but we don't know exactly how they got weapons or if they just had a lot of pointy sticks or I don't know. But Joshua's got to choose men to go out and fight with this group that's already proved themselves ruthless. They know what they're doing. This is how they live. They live by the sword. These are trained men. And so how do we do that? How does Joshua do that? Well, he did. He went out and he fought men, or he found men. And I, I think um, one of the things in the Christian life, there's a, there's a starting place for all of us, right? There's a starting place for Joshua and his leadership. There's a starting place for us as men and women of God to step into the fa- into the to the battle, into the fight, into service. We actually want to do something, use our gifts for the Lord. We are people that like to talk about prayer, and perhaps we pray, that's good, but prayer really um, by itself is not enough. Right? We pray and then we engage. We pray and ask the Lord for help, and then we have faith and we step out and we do something. If we just sit back all the time and use prayer as an excuse not to engage in the battle, that's not honoring to the Lord. So they, they both need to be there. So if, if God's people go into battle and try to fight just physically, and that's all they do, they're going to lose because they're not relying on the Lord in prayer, relying on his strength. If they just sat back and like, we're not going to fight, but we're just going to sit in a big circle and just pray really hard. And uh, yeah, the Lord will just take care of these guys, right? That's not what God's asking them to do. They need to step in. They need to actually fight. So Joshua's called up. The men are called up to go fight with Amalek, and he has one day, he has one day to create an army. One day. Because Moses is like, yeah, tomorrow I'm going to stand on top of the hill. Can we have another day and a half, or can I just, can I work through a little workshop with these guys? I don't know, we don't know what, what they're going to do. But Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek. There's just instant obedience. There's instant trust there. We can see why Joshua was a faithful man. Well, when he went into the land and saw the giants and all these nations, he, he just saw God wiping them out. They were food for them, they said, right? Joshua and Caleb were faithful in that. The other men were not. So they went into the battle, right? And, and Aaron and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Now, we know Aaron is Moses' older brother. Makes sense. Hur, we don't know much about. Hur is uh, mentioned other times in the Bible. We don't know if it's the exact same person or not. Um, but Hur um, is someone that was close enough and trusted enough to go up on top of the hill with Moses. And whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. So we know we're supposed to go out and fight where God calls us to fight in his strength and not our own. And we see this happening here in this battle scene. And it's an interesting one. Um, we don't know. It doesn't say that Moses was praying. It doesn't say he was interceding, but we can assume that he was in the posture of prayer. But really, based on the text here, this idea of the Lord is my banner, there's something else taking place. Um, as Moses ascended the top of the hill and he's holding up, remember, the staff of God is in his hand. So he's holding up the staff of God and he's holding this up so everyone can see it. And so when the people, when Joshua and his men are fighting in the, on the battlefield, they're looking up and they're seeing God's man and they're seeing the staff of God. 
that have, that have rescued them from many things. They saw this staff come out every time there was a plague that hit. They saw the staff come out when the water was divided and dry ground was provided, right? And salvation came from the Lord. So they, they know, they've seen, they've seen the staff hit a rock and water gushing out of it. They've seen the power of God. And so the staff represents God's authority and God's power in the hand of God's man. And so he's standing there and he's holding this up. And I just wonder, it doesn't say how it actually worked out, but at some point Moses was, was doing this and holding this up. And honestly, it was kind of like a banner. It was, it was kind of a flag, a symbol for his people. And maybe they looked up and got encouragement from that. But at some point, you know, at some point we, we pray and we say, yes, Lord. And, and we encourage someone and we, they're like, okay, that's enough, right? And we shake that off and we start to settle down and relax. And I just wonder at what point did Moses realize after he brought his hands down and the, 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 everything changed on the battlefield. The noises started to change, right? Maybe prayers started to go up. People started to shout and he looks over and they're starting to lose again. And, and maybe he's interceding. Yes, Lord, let's help us. And all of a sudden they start to win again. And I, I wonder what Joshua was doing on the field every time he was fighting someone with the sword. And then all of a sudden Moses' hand goes down and maybe he's laying on his back and he's taking strike after strike and he's ready to be done. And then he sees the staff go up like this and the power of God being, being brought to bear on this battle. And all of a sudden he's got strength and he's able to push the man off and, and fight back. And it would just be an interesting picture. And at what point did Moses realize, I got to keep my hands up in the air? Or, or some bad things are going to happen. So now he's got both hands. Originally it was his hand, then his hands, right? Because he's thinking, well, if this works, then this is going to be even better. Let's just do this for a while, right? And, he's, and he has his hands up in the air. And there's, there's, a, there, there's a picture here, a principle here, that yes, the Lord calls us out to fight, but only in his strength, right? He's teaching a people that only know the physical to start battling in the spiritual, that he fights for them. The Lord provides victory in battle, but he still calls them to do the work too. This is a sanctification principle that we see in the New Testament. God did not call his people to take up arms against Egypt. That was his salvation alone. He calls his people to take up arms against the Amalekites. He is sanctifying them. And we see this in Philippians 12, uh, so Philippians 2, 12 through 13. We see this idea of sanctification. Philippians 2, 12 through 13. This is always one of those passages that we were like, what does this mean? How does this work, God? How do we do this? Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Okay, we'll stop there for a second. So we're supposed to work out. We're supposed to be working our sanctification unto completion. We have a goal, Christ-likeness. We have a Savior who's helping us, who's the author, the perfecter of our faith. We're to look to Jesus. So we're to work out our salvation, work it until completion. With what? With fear and trembling, with reverence towards God, with respect towards God, with great humility that we can't do it on our own. And yet we're still called to do the work, right? And the second part of this, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure, So we're supposed to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling, and God's working in us, both to will, giving us desires to do these things, and actually to do the work. So it's all in his strength, but we have to be willing to do the work as well. And what is our work as God's people? To submit to his word, to obey him, to walk with him. That's always been the case. To be his people is to be a people of obedience, to to look at his, his law, to look at his word, to consider it desirous and lovely and and delightful. We see this in the Psalms. Do we delight in his word? We're supposed to see his word, 
Understand that it's difficult, but, but trust him anyway and walk in light of the word. That's how we are sanctified. We grow in light of God's truth. That's it. And so if you think I can be sanctified just by serving a little bit more, just by doing a few more things, or no, the word of God is what sanctifies us. Now, the word of God tells us to serve. So if God is prompting us to serve and he's talking about our gifts and how we are to be the body and work together and not to try to do this alone, then, then we obey that. And we say, Lord, how would you want me to, how, how can I serve your people? And we ask him and we walk with him. Jesus was our model. He didn't do anything except for what the father told him to do. He didn't say anything except for what the father told him to say. He spent time with his father and he learned his father's heart. And he had this relationship with him where he could have conversations as he was walking and as he was going and he could make decisions. God gave him insight into people's lives. And it was a beautiful picture of unbroken fellowship. And that's what we're moving toward. And so we're to work out our own salvation. We start, though, with fear and trembling, with reverence. We can't do it ourselves. So there's a repentance aspect, a daily repentance. Lord, I'm trying to be in your place. I'm testing you. I put you on trial, Lord. I've hidden all these things from you, Lord. I've disobeyed you. I've, I've taken your word and, and did it my way. I, I really want the same outcome from Scripture. Just I just want to do it my way. And we repent of those things. We ask for forgiveness, and then we, we line ourselves back up with God's word. So we have to know the word. And if you say, well, who's going to teach me? That's part of the the model of discipleship in the New Testament. We're to walk with one another. You know, someone who's been walking a little bit further in their Christian walk, they they sit down with someone else across from a table or maybe in a small group study, and they talk about God's word and they help one another. All the one another's need to be done with one another. They can't be done when you're not here, right? This is kind of a team sport, so if, if your basketball team doesn't show up for a game, you can't play the game, right? You can only do so, much, so many things through Zoom and social media, but the rest of it needs to be done together. We need to be together to do this. And so, once again, the principle here is, are you going to do things the way of the world, the way the things you used to do as a, as a, as a slave to sin, someone in bondage? Or are you going to do things God's way as God's people? We tend to want to just fight the physical battle and do things our own way. That's the way of the world. You have to reorder your lives. We talked about this with provision and with rest. We've been going through these things. Are you willing to do things God's way or do you want to do them your way? And so working out our own salvation begins with reverence, respect for God's word. How do you want me to live, Lord? Help me to reprioritize my life according to your will and not my own. We keep doing this, though. We, we I want to hang on to the worldly things. I want to hang on to everything that I like to do and still try to be a Christian. It doesn't work. The moment you take your eyes off the Lord, the moment you begin to do things in your own power and your own strength, the battle is lost. But the moment you look to him, you rally to him, you give him the glory, you do things his way, the battle is won. It's amazing to me. And I, I wonder if Moses was a little wondering what was happening when he dropped his hands. Maybe he was surprised, maybe he wasn't. But how often are we surprised when we pray for something and it actually takes place? God actually answers the prayer. and so, Oh, well, that's how that works. I've repented of my sins. I'm walking with the Lord. I mean, I'm not perfect, but God knows that. And I'm praying. And God hears my prayer. And prayer is answered. And I'm surprised that that's actually taken place. Why? (laughs) Because we mostly walk in our own strength. In the moments that we don't, it's a pleasant surprise, but we should be learning from that. And so we begin with reverence and respect and trembling, meaning just we're, we're, we're humble before the Lord. We're, we're obeying him. We know our limitations. And it's God who works in us both to will and to work for our good pleasure. This is what God's doing in our life. So when we submit to him and give him reign in our lives, he does all this stuff. He teaches us. He shows us. He leads us. He guides us. He comforts us. 
All the things that the Holy Spirit does have been given, he's been given to us as a gift. He can do all that work if we're not grieving him perpetually. And then what happens after that? When we're working out our own salvation, God is working in us. He says, do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. We are to shine as as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, to the word of God. And guess what? We're going to do this in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Nothing has changed. The battle is the same, and God is teaching us what to do. Enter the fight, step out in faith, offer yourselves as living sacrifices, get in the mix, and at the same time, look to, look to the Lord and, and rely on him. It's in his strength, right? Ephesians chapter 6 helps us with this too. One that we know and many have memorized, and yet how do we live? Do we live in light of this or not? Ephesians 6, verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Reread this. Well, we might read it like that, but we live differently. We, we live, finally, be strong in yourself in the strength of your might. That, that's, our, that's our personal translation. That's our sinful translation coming out. I can do this, Lord. I can take this out. I, this... This situation here, Lord, or this guy, or this, I, I can deal with this. And we're thinking in the physical realm. That's how we think. That's how we've been trained to think. And God says, no, put on the whole armor of God that you might be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. And their schemes, their strategies, they're purposeful. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Do, do you understand that? that this, that's, that's a worldly mentality. Yes, there's, there's interactions in flesh and blood. Yes, we live in this physical world, but that's not our battle. That's not our struggle. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That's what's actually taking place. It always has. So how do we respond as his people? Do we just look at the physical fight, or do we look to Christ to be our strength? We have to be strong in the Lord. That means walking with him, being a people of the word, and the strength of his might. God has all the power that we need. (laughs) We don't need to try to manufacture our own. He can take care of all these things if we would just give ourselves to him, submit ourselves to him. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood. All of these other things. And so therefore, take up the whole armor of God. And you guys know the, the, the whole picture, right? The whole picture of the Roman soldier, the whole armor of God, and what holds it all together at the end prayer. Praying at all times in the spirit, verse 18. Praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplications for all the saints. Prayer is central here. It's, it's foundational for us. So if we are not a people of the word and a people of prayer, the battle's over. We've lost already. And many of us live in a frustrated, kind of cyclical life where we just feel like we're always losing. We're always in defeat, and we're supposed to be Christians. And why not? It's because we're doing things our way and not God's way. It's not his fault. He makes it clear. So is, can the church be the church? Can we do one another's? Can we, can we do this together? We need to help one another out. He calls us to fight, calls us to fight in his strength, but also calls us to help each other in the battle. We see this with Aaron and her coming up alongside Moses. This was the, the, the mighty man of God, the great deliverer, Right? And he's got the staff of God. He's got everything he needs. He's holding it up. But his arms get, have you ever held your arms up for very long? If you tried like painting or 
doing a, trying to do a light fixture by yourself or something, and you think you're strong until you're trying to put up a little light fixture or, or painting some. I mean, the your arms get tired quickly. It hurts, right? Can you imagine him trying to do this all day, holding up the staff? And he's probably wondering, this staff has done all these things, and it can't hold my arm up for me? Like, what? Come on, right? And so he's holding this thing up, and he, and he can't. And I, Aaron and her come alongside of him, and I love how they did this. They didn't assume to take over. They understood where the authority came from. They, they didn't try to take the staff. Let me try. That's really awesome. Let me try that. No, they came alongside of him. And notice that they didn't just come alongside and, good job, Moses. Come on, man. You can do this. Come on. You got to get in the gym more. Come on, right? Getting them pumped up, getting them ready. No, he's not. There's not some pep rally. They're not sitting over on another rock playing cards, just looking and sending over some emojis as they write on the rock and thumbs up and right. This is how we live our life now, though. We think someone sends us a text or someone's struggling with something and we, we think emojis are going to solve all the problem. Somehow that's, that there's some affinity there and we're, we're, there's nothing there. We can communicate a little bit with that and that's fine. But there needs to be presence. There needs to be someone physically there with you, holding you up. Yes, in prayer, but also in presence. We need, we need each other. Once again, as the church, we can't do the one another's if we're not around one another. It just doesn't work. Many of us, we, we, we tried to do this through the COVID shutdown. There was a period of time where we just couldn't meet together. Was that sufficient for you? No, it wasn't. And thankfully, technology helps us a little bit, but it doesn't take the place of the church being the church. If you're not here, we can't be the church. If you're not engaged in the battle, we're going to be deficient. We're going to limp along. We're not going to be healthy. And so these men come alongside, and they're not just cheering them on from afar and, and sending the thumbs up. They're, they're, in the, they're themselves wearing themselves out there. They're sacrificing their own bodies for the sake of Moses holding his hands, for the sake of the people, for the sake of God's glory. They're not just fighting to win some battle. This is, this is for God's glory because they are God's people. And so when we are in God's word, we, we think about those things. Our minds are being renewed, right? And we change how we act. <clears throat> and so both Moses' hands, verse 12, were, grew weary. So they took a stone and put it under him and sat on it while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And what was the result? Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Overwhelmed them. What could we do as God's people if we helped one another? A minute ago, last week, the people were ready to stone Moses. They were angry with God. They didn't trust God. They put God on trial. And now this man, this, this leader who still cried out, what do you want me to do with these people? Now they're using a stone to lift him up so he could sacrificially intercede on behalf of the people. That's, that's amazing leadership. We'll talk about that next week. God provides servant leaders. There's a sacrificial mindset. There's a mindset for God's glory because if God's people lose, then, then God loses in, in Moses' mind. So he, he will do whatever is possible for God's people to win, including sacrificing his own body. And Aaron and Hur came alongside, provided a stone for him to sit on. Just something to think about. And next week, I'm sure this will be discussed more, but just the idea of providing rest and help for leaders. God provides leadership as one of the gifts in the church. Not that it's anything more special than anything else, but it's just a role to play. And it's just different. But leaders need help too. They need support. They need prayer. They need people to come alongside of them. And it's for their sake. It's for the sake of the people. So we see some great principles coming through here. The last thing 
So God calls us to go out and fight, calls us to pray and fight in his strength, and calls us to help one another. But God also calls us to remember that victory is his and that he is our banner. So he tells them to write this in a memorial, and Moses builds an altar, and the name of it's called, The Lord is My Banner, Jehovah Nisi. So what does this mean? What's this whole banner idea, and how does it interact with what just took place? Banner, this word is a military term for a, either a standard, a, a signal pole, or a flag. It's, it's, a, it's, it's what the, um, whatever, whatever army it is or division it is, they would hold up this banner. They would hold it really high. There would be a standard bearer, if you've heard those terms before. And the standard itself, the word standard came from this is where the army would take their stand and they would have the flag to represent who they are. The flag would be their identity. It would be a rallying point for the people. It would show that the flag is still standing, so we're still standing. There was an encouragement there. There was a, that was a place to gather and to regroup if they had to retreat. And it was a place where the standard bearer would walk out ahead of the army with the leader so that everyone could see kind of where to go, where the movement was going. And the standard bearer was ultimately often considered the bravest person in the army because they had no weapon. They just had a flag, right, holding really high, walking up front. But it was to identify who they are. It was, it was really to provide a sense of peace and protection and comfort in the midst of all the chaos of war. So whenever the chaos was ensuing and maybe you started to drift away and being chased, you could look up and see this standard. You could see this banner and know that I need to get back with my people, with my group. And so the Lord is my banner. The Lord was their rallying point. He was the one that provided all their strength. In the midst of the chaos of battle, they could look to him. He was the one that gave them victory. And so holding up the staff of God was really holding up the banner saying that God's power is with us. We are God's people. We are here to defend and to to fight for God's glory, right? He just saved us, and so so we are going to honor him and be obedient in battle. And so this is what this was the, the, the standard or the, the banner that Moses was holding up. Ultimately, the Lord is their banner. And ultimately, for us, Christ is our banner. Jesus Christ died on a cross. He was lifted high. And if we put our faith in him and believe in him for the atonement of our sins, then we will be saved. We are a saved people. And now, as we struggle through this world and opposition comes, we go to him he is our banner. He's, he's our protector. The victory is already his. The whole idea of revelation is that at the end of it, Jesus wins. He wins. It's for our blessing it's to read that. And, when, and you notice at the end of revelation, no one's supposed to add anything or take anything away from this prophecy. Why? Because the, there's no other ending to the story. Jesus wins. And if we belong to him, we've won. But as we move through this world, there will be opposition. Jesus is our banner. And we rally to him. We regroup with him. We regather to him, not to ourselves. We don't scatter and run away. We come back to him. He is our strength. He's already given us victory in his blood. And, and this, this was actually brought up in uh, Isaiah and his prophecy, his messianic prophecy in, in chapter 11, Isaiah 11, verses 10. It says, In that day, the root of Jesse, Jesus, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, same word. It's, it's a banner for the peoples. Jesus is a signal of him that shall, uh, of him shall the nations inquire and his resting place shall be glorious. The Gentiles shall inquire of him. They'll, they'll see that the Messiah has come. 
It says in verse 12, he will raise a signal for the nations, a banner for the nations. It will assemble the banished of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. This is a gathering place. He's the place to gather as his people. We gather under him. He is our banner. He is our protector. He is our savior. We don't need a staff. We don't need a stick anymore, right? We have a savior. And he is high and lifted up. And he's at the right hand of the father. And he's interceding for us. And he loves us. And he will carry us through this, but we have to gather under him. And what has Jesus done to all of these powers and principalities and spiritual forces of evil and heavenly realm? Like, what has God, what has Jesus done? Ephesians chapter one helps us a little bit with this. This is Paul's, one of his great run on sentences. I don't even know if I can jump in the middle here. He just keeps going. Um, In verse 18, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, God's doing all this, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule. This is where, this is where Jesus resides and this is where we live now too. We are seated in the heavenlies, right? Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named not only in this age, but also the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Jesus is above everything. In Colossians chapter 2, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. This is verse 13. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. God's already done the work. We've already won. All the stuff that comes against us, is, it's part of the journey. It's part of our sanctification. So if we continue to live in fear and think that all these people have all this power over us, we begin to scatter on the battlefield. We begin to leave our banner and go look for something else. Who can save us? Who can protect us? Where do I go? Where do I gather? Because if we're not a people of the word, we're ultimately going to be people of the world. And we're going to look for our help other places and we'll be constantly disappointed. We're going to look for our help in politicians and in, I mean, this is what we do practically, right? If we don't hear good news on the, you know, from a station we're watching or from radio, then we're, we're putting our hope in these people. When we walk away dejected and angry and frustrated, all of our hope has been in them and they've let us down. And so we walk away discouraged and depressed. That's not who we are. We pray for those people. We pray the Lord help us live in peace with everyone. Please protect our, our home. But, but we're not fighting the physical fight. We're fighting the spiritual battle, right? Many of us go home and we, we are so occupied with our security systems, our alarm systems, and making sure everything is set, all our deadbolts are set and locked, and we have our weapons next to our bed, and we go to, we go to bed at night with the peace that we're just locked in tight and no one can touch us. And that's not true. We see that time and again. That's not true. How about you use all those things that God's given you? That's fine. They're, they're good things. They're, they still, Joshua still had to go fight. He still had to pick up a sword. That's good. But how about as you lock the deadbolt, you thank the Lord for your home, that he is your protector, that anyone who comes to this door is only because God would allow it, and you pray that he wouldn't allow it, and you thank him for that alarm system that helps Keep your family safe. But ultimately, Lord, you're the one that keeps my family safe. I don't put my trust in this stuff, in batteries and wires and plastic. I don't put my trust in any of these things. We live in the, we live in the physical, but we're not fighting the physical. We have to start thinking like freed men and women. 
Because the world, these nations, they want to put us back in bondage. They want to pull us away from our true king, from our God. They're angry and rebellious against him, and so they're going to be angry and rebellious against us, his people. This is just clear in scripture. How are we going to fight? If more of us would fight on our knees, praying to the Lord, spending more time in the word, then our minds will be renewed. How much time do you spend in the word versus how much time do you spend listening to other things? Who's going to win? A 10-minute devotion versus hours and hours of worldly chatter and influence? Who's going to win for the battle of your mind and your heart? Whoever has your devotion and your attention. Who are you rallying towards? Many of you may know the story of the Star-Spangled Banner, our national anthem. It's it's had a bit of a controversy the last several years for a lot of different reasons, but the Star-Spangled Banner, it wasn't until I was in this text and started studying this that I realized what banner meant. Oh, it meant a flag. I don't know. I just, you just say it, right? You grow up with it. And well, this, this starts to make more sense. So I studied it a little bit just to try to get an idea of what this was all about because it seemed to fit a little bit with the, with the text and this idea of Don's early light and, and the rocket's red glare, you know, proving that our flag was still there. There's something about that flag still being there. And what did the flag represent? It's, it's, our, it's our national identity. It's all the men and women who have fought and died for this country. It's, it's a, it has its own history. And even at the end of, of, the, of the national anthem, it's uh, land of the free and home of the brave. It kind of encapsulates who we are. So it's our, our national identity. And it, it makes sense that... Uh, um, that Francis Scott Key wrote this, but why did he write it? So I, I, I looked it up a little bit. So the War of 1812 uh, was, was, was ensuing, and this was 1814 when Francis Scott Key actually penned this as a poem based on what he had observed in, in this one small little battle. And uh, so this was largely a trade um, war, a territory expansion war with, with uh, Britain. And... Um, a few weeks before, uh, the British had actually um, attacked Washington, D.C. They had set fire to uh, the, um, the Capitol and to the Treasury, to the President's house. So they were, they were, they were, they were winning some of the battles. And, and this particular battle that, that took place when, uh, when Francis Scott Key was, was there, he was a 35-year-old attorney. He was a lawyer. And he was there to negotiate the release of a friend of his who was captured. Maybe he was more arrested by the British. So the, he was on one of the British flagships. And the, Britain had the, one of the greatest naval um, um, contingencies, the, one of the greatest naval armies in, in the world at that time. And so uh, the British were lined up on the East Coast. And there was Fort McHenry was right there in the, in the Baltimore Harbor. So that's where the battle was taking place. And he was just there as an attorney representing his client, his friend, negotiated a release, and they said, yes, you can." he actually negotiated it. He could take his friend. But he said, now you know what we're doing. You can see all the ships coming in. We can't let you leave yet. So he was an American, so they put him back on his vessel, and they guarded him, and they made him just watch. And for 25 hours straight, this British army, these, these uh, warships, just shelled and, and bombarded Fort, Fort McHenry. So they just, in the, British, in the Baltimore Harbor, it was the Battle of, of uh, Baltimore. And so they just, they just pounded this. I mean, pounded and pounded and pounded. It was just smoke and, and noise and shells were flying everywhere. And, and so Key's just witnessing this. And he's just thinking, there's no way. I mean, the British are going to take, take the fort. There's no way that we survived this. And, but in the middle of the night, when the rockets were, were bursting, he could still see the flag. And he had a little bit of hope, like, well, that's, 
I can't believe they're still standing. And by the dawn's early lights, as the, as the smoke clears, the flag was still there. And he was amazed by that. I mean, it really moved him that this fort held its ground and they won that battle against incredible odds. There was no way that someone could take 25 hours of shelling and pounding. And he actually, um, another one of Key's uh, writings, he said, it seemed as though Mother Earth had opened and was vomiting shot and shell in a sheet of fire and brimstone. I mean, he's got away with words, but this, is, this was his imagery, right? It was just nonstop, and yet the flag was still there. And so at that time, 1814, he, he just wrote down this poem, and then it just caught kind of, the, the poem kind of um, just caught on with many people really liked it. It was, it was the symbol of national pride. It was the story of victory, the standard, the flag was still there, right? There was this sense of hope, a rallying point for the Americans, and so by 1916, Woodrow Wilson actually declared that this song, because they, they put it to music, would be uh, sang at any national type of event, official event. And by 1931, it became our official national anthem, the land of the free and the home of the brave. This is a, this is a story about physical war and a physical representation of a standard, of a flag, of a banner that we live under. Right? But spiritually, we are under the banner of Christ and his cross. God who came down in the form of a man, fully God, fully man, the Son of God came, and he was bombarded. He was attacked. He was tortured, mocked, and ridiculed. This perfect lamb, this, this Savior, this Messiah, he was horribly tortured and crucified in the most terrible way with thieves and murderers, rejected by his own people. And it seemed like there was no hope. And they took him down off the cross after he had died and put him in a tomb, and his disciples walked away. What do we do now? Three days later, at the dawn of the day, Jesus rose from the dead, and he provided victory for his people. He saved us from our sins. He took all of that. He took all of the shelling and all of the bombardment, all of the attack on himself, so that we could be free from this, from this bondage, so that we can walk as free men and women. And now he's seated, in the heaven, he's seated at the right hand of the Father. He's interceding for us. He's given us his Holy Spirit so that we can walk in this world differently. I'm not still trying to fight physical battles like slaves and remembering things in the past as if they were, it was a better day. No, we're, we're moving forward toward the promised land, to the glory of God, and we are going to be in battles, and the, the Amalekites are going to come, and the, right? The Philistines are going to come. All, all the nations are going to come against God's people. And how are we going to fight? On our own strength, and our own might, you will be defeated every time. You will be frustrated, and you will lay down, and you will give up. Because it's not about flesh and blood. Jesus has defeated all the authorities. He has all dominion and all rule. We are his. We belong to him. If we would just do things his way, not our own, we will see victory in this life, not just in the next. God has already won. Jesus has won. How will we walk now? He is our standard. He is our banner. When we look at the cross, do we have that same feeling that, that Francis Scott Key had, that, that, that feeling of national pride, that national hope? We can do this. We can. You have to look to the cross. You have to look to Christ. You can't look to yourself. You can't look to the world. We look to him. We have strength. We rally together as God's people. We go out together into the battle. This is the life. We have to stop fighting against God and start fighting for him. And so the Lord is our banner. His banner over us is love. He loves us. He died for us. And now he sanctifies us. And so let's be a people of the word, not a people of the world. Let's enter the battle on his strength, not our own. Let's help one another.
And let's remember what God has done. We write it down. God has written it down so that we can then recite it in one another's ear, right? Just like he was to do it for Joshua so that we remember because the next one's coming. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to come and gather as your people under your banner. You are our banner. You are the one we come to, Lord. You're the one that we gather around. You're the one where we gain strength and encouragement and edification. We're called to strengthen one another, to to lift one another up, Lord. We can only do that by your strength. We need your help. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the examples of your people in Israel. As much as it um, is difficult to watch sometimes, a groaning and complaining and idolatrous people continue time and again to misunderstand and reject, Lord. We know that that's us, and we know that you're gracious. Help us, Father, to live in light of that grace, to take hold of the throne boldly, Lord, so that we might get help from you. Help us to be a people of prayer, to intercede, to be selfless and sacrificial, Father. We know that in every other area of life, if we want to achieve something, if we want to move toward a goal, we have to sacrifice. We have to give ourselves to that pursuit. We know that it takes time and energy and effort. And We pray, Father, that we would spend ourselves, instead of in pursuits of this world, in pursuit of you, your kingdom work. We are here for a very short period of time, Lord, but we're with you for eternity. Help us to bring you glory now. Help us to walk as freed men and women, not focused just on the physical, Lord, but understanding the spiritual battle that's around us. These are not just a pep rally, Lord, words. These are, this is, this is your word. Help us to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling, Lord, even as you work in us. Thank you for your son. Thank you for our salvation. Thank you that we are your people. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope you enjoyed this teaching from the Word of God. If you don't have a church home, we invite you to visit Black Forest Chapel in Black Forest, Colorado, near Monument and just north of Colorado Springs. You'll find biblical teaching and authentic worship in an environment that feels like family and friends. Get directions and more information at blackforestchapel.org.